Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode of the podcast, I get a chance to catch up with Cordell Jacks, who I met about three years ago during a plant medicine ceremony back in Canada. Since then, both of our lives have taken a very interesting path, and it's been great to reconnect with him over the last six months or so and hear about what he's doing. And we dive into that on this episode. He shares his journey through childhood, um, young traveling career, and issues with injury as an endurance athlete, uh, ultra runner, Ironman, and what happened when he had a succession of surgeries on his knee and how he was able to overcome that through his inner world. More recently, Cordell has been diving into what he's really passionate about and sharing, and that's dream work. Um, He's become a dream coach and has started a series of courses, um, which I've signed up for, and I'm going to be starting next week, actually. So this is part one of two with Cordell, talking about his history, his journey, his experiences, which really led him to dream work. And then after the course is done, we're going to dive back in much deeper on on the dream work specifically, how to nurture that and take advantage of the opportunity for a ceremony each night. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. All right. Um, well, I just want to start off by saying thanks again, Cordell, for, for taking the time and coming on the show and sharing your story. Um, and uh, yeah, really excited to dive in. We had a good chat last week, so... I know you were sort of saving some some nuggets for a fresh conversation, and yeah, I'm excited to learn more about you and your story, and and what sort of some of the key factors and experiences have uh, brought you to where you are today, and share some of the wisdom that you've gained over the years. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Always great, and get a chance to connect here. Mm-hmm. So I think um, our plan is to do a little bit of a two-part series, and today is going to be a little bit more sort of talking about your your origin story and your journey. Uh, you know, your you shared a little bit before about your experience with your body and being an athlete and overcoming some of that, and then we'll touch on some of the dream work that you're focusing on a little bit more recently, uh, and then save a bit of that for a deep dive on the next round, but... Yeah, if you could start off by just letting letting me and, and the listeners know sort of where you grew up, what that was like, um, sort of leading up into some of the more extreme endurance sports that you were participating in, and we can kind of go from there. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, so I'm a son of the prairies in Canada, and grew up in a great family household, one brother. Parents are both still together and uh, a beautiful life. And then when I was about 11 years old, um, we had some, some turmoil in the family. And that's where my parents were a, a big national company. The company went bankrupt. 
and my life started to, to change quite a bit. The, the nice, perfect little family household got its first, first big shakeup. And at that time, my father worked to save a, a big national company. And in doing so, really pushed himself to extreme limits and ended up uh, suffering some from some severe depression, really taking took four years to recover from this, ultimately ending up in some electrical shock therapy after trying pharmaceuticals and different therapies for years. And thankfully that, that helped cure him. But those four years became, um, you know, were, were somewhat traumatic for me. We were almost losing our house continuously. My mom had to start a company to keep us going. And so that was kind of a big uh, core factor in my life. And Luckily, things transitioned on and moved smoothly from there. I went to university, I went to business school, got into to finance and then social finance, and uh, moved on to what was a really big chapter in my life, which was taking a bit of a leap. And my partner and I, my, my now wife, we decided to, to throw ourselves out into the universe and uh, just packed up some backpacks, sold everything we had. She left, sold her company. I left the, the organizations I was working with and running. And uh, we bought a one-way ticket to Calcutta. And with that, we had just planned on, on traveling for the next few years and seeing what, whatever came on the path. Before we even left Canada, I received this random serendipitous phone call. And this guy called me up. It was actually on my buddy's couch throwing a bachelor party for some friends. I said, you don't know me, but uh, I live in Cambodia. I run an international NGO. Friend of a friend of a friend passed your name on to me. Would you be interested in coming out and running a, a water and sanitation project for people living in the rural villages? I said, oh, wow, you got the wrong guy. I don't know anything about international development. I don't know anything about water and sanitation. I sure don't know anything about Cambodia. He said, well... I hear your problem solver. Come on out. Give us a couple months of your time. And I called up my partner and said, do you want to do this? And she said, yeah, let's do it. It sounds like an adventure. Mm. And that took us on a, a seven-year journey of figuring out market systems and development projects to, to get water and sanitation to rural poor households. And it was during that time that uh, really got into extreme endurance sports. So um, marathons and triathlons, ultimately leading to Ironman and uh, some ultra races. And it was throughout that time, uh, really enjoying it, really feeling like charging on my cylinders. Um, I was preparing for an, for an ultra race. And they had a pain in my foot and uh, I had to stop. And that, that led to realizing some problems in my knee. And that led to, became five multiple surgeries to try and fix it. And ultimately nine months in bed and unfortunately, none of that was ever resolved. So I haven't run in the last eight years. And it was kind of the start of another new chapter, which was um, having to settle down, having to slow down. And that ultimately turned me on a journey of, uh, rather than running around all over the planet, uh, turning in. I think a little mm -hmm. bit about the time where you and I first connected. And mm -hmm. So I was on that inward journey and continue to be on it. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, a couple questions just to like add some context to this. Um, how old were you when you packed up the backpacks and, and ended up in Cambodia? 
Yeah, I was 29 at the time. Okay. And what was your sort of athletic prowess, you know, in high school and and throughout your 20s then? Were you, you know, that's a, Ironman is no joke to be getting into. So I imagine you must have been pretty active throughout the earlier years too. Yeah, our family put us in, my brother and I, every single sport. So I, we were a pretty serious lacrosse family. I played hockey throughout my life. Uh, football in high school, which was the first time I injured my my knee. It's a, it's a brutal sport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as it was a lot of fun. And uh, badminton, soccer, you name it. We had everything going. 20, 24-7, 365 days ago, we were involved in some form of competitive sport. So it was always a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did you find... You know, I think a lot of guys in our culture play team sports, graduate high school or university, and then don't have that anymore. And I feel like that's something I've come to realize a lot. Fortunately, I, I started a soccer team with a friend of mine, but that ended with uh, an ACL tear myself when I was 26, I think, 26, 27. And um, ever since then, you know, I've missed that camaraderie, that group you know, you're going to battle. There's also just this primal opportunity for expression. You know, you can yell at the refs, you can get physical and, um, you know, losing that I've realized has been a bit of a blow to just my general like experience in life. I think and I still haven't really been able to find a substitute. I don't, but I'm curious to know, like your experience throughout your twenties, after having all these high school sports, having, you know, all these you know, hockey, lacrosse, similar to soccer, basketball, in terms of the sort of culture and brotherhood that you have? How did you sort of transition from that into these very individual pursuits of ultra running and Ironman? Yeah, you know, I'd love to say it was it was driven or motivated by something else, but I think there was a lot of vanity in it, you know? Mm. I, I'm a bigger guy. I was um, overweight in, in my earlier years. And so I wanted to look good. And mm-hmm. Running just seems like a great way to, to shed the pounds, to get the heart rate up, and uh, put itself in love with it. Whether that was, you know, egotistically driven or not, uh, it just became a passion. And so I didn't really um, feel the big loss in all the team sport. Of course, there was mm-hmm. other ways that I found camaraderie and mm-hmm. friendship in business and mm-hmm. you know, sorts of things that I was into. But it just became something that was more about the personal drive, personal motivation. How do I continuously push my personal growth edge? Mm-hmm. And that became faster, farther, um, harder. And mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, that, that continuous competitive drive, even within myself, is what I think I wasn't ready. I wasn't emotionally or mentally ready to self-regulate in the way I probably should have. And so being a big guy going at these, these extreme distances, ultimately I, I didn't have the well-roundedness of, you know, stretching and, and putting the health uh, mm-hmm. nutrition piece together. And so I think that was, that was part of what ultimately, you know, the brilliance of my, my body's biology, our body's biology was, okay, time to stop, time to slow down. You're going to push it a little too far here. And that's mm-hmm. part of what happened. Yeah. No, I think that's so natural especially like in our mid late twenties, whether it's work or sports, you know, those seem like, well, of course there's other things like alcohol and partying and things like that. But 
we definitely push things, you know, beyond our limits. And I've heard somebody even say like, that's the time to, you know, find where your limits are. And then once you get into your thirties and forties, you try and stay within them a little bit more mindfully. But was that, um, you know, onset of, of injury, was that really the first sort of awakening for this like level of self-awareness or had you been, you know, reading spiritual books or meditating or having any of those practices before this? Yeah, that, that had always been a big part of my life. I think I was always a bit of an existential seeker ever since mm. I was young. The big questions, why are we here? What is this all about? Am I just supposed to follow in my parents and grandparents' footsteps mm-hmm. and get a job and use a family, try to make more, do more? And, mm-hmm. um, so earlier in my life, I got into Buddhism. I, meditation has always been a part of it and not a, a, a well-taught or well-practiced, you know. In my early days, I sit and I'd smoke a joint and I'd go for hour-long meditative walks and just try and connect in with myself. Um, but that had always been uh, a part of part of my search and a part of my journey. But when when these injuries happened and when the surgery happened, you know, going from you talked about leaving the, the camaraderie and the competitiveness of sports, mm-hmm. all of a sudden a major foundation of my life was removed overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, going from working out two or three times a day, running, biking, swimming, to all of a sudden not able to do any of that for nine months. And literally being bedridden for nine months, surgery after surgery. Okay, this didn't work. You got to try it again. Um, you can imagine that that caused a bit of a depression for me. And that was the first time that that had ever entered my life. And so at the end of these nine months, um, my wife and I had decided to, to leave our home base in Cambodia we left the organization that, that we were working with and uh, we decided we we're going to just take a year off, something we had planned to do those seven years earlier, travel a little bit um, and finally just take a year off for ourselves. And at the end of this last surgery, coming out of a bit of a depression, not able to, to, to sport, not able to jump around on stages playing in bands, mm-hmm. I was really trying to rediscover myself and what this next chapter would be like. And at the end of these nine months, I was watching a documentary in Canada. We have a, uh, an environmentalist and ecologist named David Suzuki, who's mm-hmm. on uh, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. Uh, he had a weekly show called The Nature of Things. He was doing a program, a documentary on uh, a gentleman named Gabor Mate, a trauma, trauma specialist, and he was showing some of his work with ayahuasca and these incredible results he was having in, in treating heroin addicts in East Vancouver and treating um, PTSD and trauma patients. And I had heard of ayahuasca before, but it really caught my attention. And particularly coming out of this depressive state, I was, I think I was open and listening. Mm-hmm. And so a few months later, um, we started, my wife and I started our sabbatical. The first place we ended up in was Cabo San Lucas, uh, Mexico, for a surf trip with some friends. And we were staying in this little villa with these, these friends, some of whom I knew and some of whom I didn't. And I was telling this, this woman about this documentary I had just seen. And she said, oh, yeah, that's, that's my father, Gabor Mate. If you're <laughs> interested in working with some of the shamans wow. he's worked with, um, they're, they're performing some ceremonies here in Mexico in a few weeks' time. And I just made a beeline, my wife and I made a beeline down there. And that really opened up uh, a lot of my, my own personal growth and personal journey. 
in yeah. a whole way, new way. And so much so that my wife and I always talk about it as uh, life before the plant medicines and life after because it was that fundamental and foundational shift for us that our paths, our journeys, and, and really our perspectives on life, uh, on life really shifted. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that in terms of the before and after. Uh, also, that's just like such a wild coincidence. And I'm almost, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, David Suzuki was putting that on television in a way and talking about ayahuasca. Um, that must have been, I don't know, how many years ago do you think that was now and that you would have done your first ceremonies there? Yeah, I started my first ceremonies in, in 2015. And I'm not sure that that documentary was brand new or a year old or so. So it was, you know, it's been someone pushing pushing the edges of, of looking at sustainability and ecology and, and mm-hmm. the brilliance of uh, nature around us. So uh, thankful, very thankful that, that it was. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. And, um, and what they say about serendipity and coincidence, it's, it's kind of like the secret handshake of the universe. Mm-hmm. People talk about their plant medicine experiences. You know, it calls you when you're ready. Mm-hmm. That, that felt like a time that I was open and ready to to have those experiences. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to just touch back into the the experience of the the surgeries on the knee. I'm curious to know what it was. If it was you know ligament or what was going on there. You know, I've got some experience with that myself. That I've shared a bit here too. Um, and then also just you know, I imagine in something for myself where you know, there's different parts to that, you know, being bedridden, not being able to run, coming out of it. Maybe just the fact of not being able, not really knowing what we're going to be able to get back to. And one, it's like, you know, a huge piece of our identity probably at that point. But also another thing, which probably is, you know, leads to the depression, I imagine, is the sense of purpose, you know, like, having a holistic purpose in life and mission and dream, I think is, is the goal and something that isn't talked about and people don't employ enough. But if we have this athletic pursuit and our goal is a certain time in a certain race, that can be enough purpose to drive us through our lives, you know, and inspire good eating choices and healthy habits. And obviously the training that comes along with that. But I've really become more and more clear on how powerful that sort of purpose can be. And when that's taken away, the sort of confusing, sad, depressive state that can take its place. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that sort of process, the surgery itself, and then sort of grappling with those pieces afterwards. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, but the surgeries were multiple. It was my second ACL repair. When they did that, they, they screwed the, the, the ACL in and the hamstring in and they cracked my tibial plateau, mm-hmm. which from that, the meniscus divided, and a cartilage graft, uh, the first one done in the region that I was living, living in. And none of that helped in the end. I, I still couldn't run. I was still in pain. And the knee was shot. So mm-hmm. they said, you know, ultimately you're going to need a knee replacement, something that's coming up in the next few months in my mm-hmm. life. So there seems to be a bit of a, a closing or an end to this, what's been an eight-year chapter in my life, which you know, gives a, a glimmer of uh, a new light into what, what, what 
my physical health might be like after that. So mm-hmm. there's there was a lot there, um, and a lot of you know a lot of trauma comes with the, the surgery. Yeah. And ultimately, as as I've had a lot of time to reflect on this, you know, questioning why why this what was the purpose of all this? Why this came to be? Mm-hmm. And not to be too fatalistic, but you know, I ultimately believe that um, there were other things in store. There were blind spots and cues that I was not picking up onto in my day-to-day life that ultimately the universe needed to just, you know, take my knee out from underneath me and say, okay, slow down, turn in, listen, what's going on? Don't just, don't just be running around all the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, to, to your point and to your question on, on purpose, you know, I, I love that, that saying that with any big enough or strong enough why you can accomplish any how. And that, that's what really drove me in those, those big, long races. You know, I remember coming to the marathon aspect of an Ironman, and for every kilometer, every one of the 42 kilometers, I would have something in mind, a, a big why. I'm, I'm racing this kilometer for this per- person, or I'm racing mm. this kilometer for this greater drive. And, you know, for those seven years that I spent in, in international development, I had a purpose. I felt like I was doing incredibly meaningful work. I, I know the work that we did affected the lives of millions of people. And that, mm-hmm. that continued to drive me no matter you know, how hard the obstacle challenge. And so that was a great motivator. Mm-hmm. Now without the knee, now without the, the work, um, mm-hmm. there's a big question of, of what's next. And, you know, fortunately for me, at that time, I was asked to um, come to a social innovation residency at the Banff Center in Canada. There's 28 people from across the country that were chosen for their work in social innovation. And we spent a month up there with a lot of systems change theory, theorists uh, and educators. We, there were uh, a lot of Indigenous teachers as well. And they were really looking at um, that, that big question of how do you become the change you want to see in the world? And so a lot of my drive in the past seven years have been about scale. How do we reach more people? How do we impact more countries? How do we, and that was a big metric. That was a driver of success for me. And a lot of that shifted as I started to look at, okay, where, where within me are these blind spots, these shadows that ultimately whatever I build, whatever I create, I'm imbuing those cultures, those relationships, those organizations with my own shit, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really turns that, that metric of scale from scaling out to scaling deep. How mm-hmm. do I do the deeper work within myself? And ultimately, in knowing, um, maybe in hope at that time, but now in knowing that that work will have you know, ripples out into the universe from whatever I do. And so that's been a, a real drive in my purpose, looking at my, my shadows, looking at um, where I can be the most that I can be, where I can um, grow through my, my, my hidden aspects and know that that will affect all of the relationships and everything I do going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for me anyways, once I started looking inward, you know, there was this, there was this big shift from the outside world, from what I thought I needed to do to doing this, like unraveling, cleaning, (laughs) purifying, you know, returning to my truer self. But I also find with that process, you know, then at some point 
you need to also, you know, re-engage with the outer world with these new lessons. And it's quite a tricky balance, I find anyways, to, okay, am I, you know, clear enough with myself to start engaging outwardly without projecting too much of that shit? And like, you know, when and how much to push and, you know, do that? How did you sort of find that process to be? Yeah, that's that's been a, that was a big challenge and continues to be a tension within my life. So um, a good a, a good story of, of how I looked at that. When we were in, let's take sanitation, international sanitation, there are 2.5 billion people without access to sanitation, hygienic sanitation in the world. So that was, that's a big number. That's one in three people in the world. And so that was the goal. How do we affect billions of lives? And that felt good as we were starting to take off bigger and bigger numbers. Mm-hmm. And I came to Vancouver after this year-long sabbatical. And I started going, what do I want to get into? And I got into um, clean tech startups. We were looking at sustainable agriculture. Um, I got into ocean plastics. I'm still involved in ocean plastics with a number of organizations. And these are big, massive global problems. How do we get clean food to the people? How do we you know, take our biggest ecosystem, that is the ocean, and ensure that you know, we have uh, a sustainable ecology there. And I started jumping from organization to organization. We were doing good work, but it was the question of where's the focus? Which one of these problems? And we face so many big existential issues and challenges in our times. Where do we direct our focus and ensure that it's not just sporadic and that it is you know, making the leaps and bounds that are at the heart of our values and our beliefs? And for me, that's, that's really, it's turned back inward. It's, it's gone to how do I embody those ideals in every decision, in every action that I take every single day? And really just coming back to the microcosm of self. You know, if, I, if I live towards those values, that is ultimately the best thing that I can do. And from there, to look to, to projecting upward again, okay, embodying these values. What can I build on that? What are the insights that I can gain for myself and what it takes to, to live this way, to overcome these challenges, to overcome the, the cultural issues that we live within? And that's where the ideas and the new opportunities uh, seem to be coming from. So um, it really went from a, an outward focus back to the core central being, and now it's it's starting to move back out again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's great, and I think that is crucial. I think the experience of ourselves as individuals is, you know, such a clear metaphor for our countries, our societies. The um, environment, politics, all of those things. And it's so important to create that foundation within ourselves. Otherwise, everything is like built on sand, right? It feels like, yeah. So again, sort of touching back into your your story and your first experience in, I'm guessing Mexico, but wherever it was with, with the plant medicines and ayahuasca, uh, maybe you could share a little bit of about that experience, because it's such a, you know, like you said, life-changing before and after thing and sort of what where you're at going into it, if you had expectations or ideas around it. And when you came out of those, however many ceremonies you sort of did initially, where you're at and any sort of crucial insights or takeaways you had. 
Yeah. But, you know, I, I'd known about it. I'd had a friend who had gone down to Peru years earlier and he said it was one of the most significant experiences of his life. And that always stuck with me, but I hadn't thought about it for probably 10 years. And when it came up, you know, having seen that documentary, knowing there was more there, ultimately, I have to say, my wife and I were, were still experienced explorers. And so we're like, this is another thing to try and do. Mm-hmm. And very little expectation beyond that, very little intention for what we wanted out of the experience. And um, the, the very first night of sitting was so profound that I, I came out of there. My wife couldn't sit that first night. Came back to our little uh, cabina in the jungle. She was like, how was it? I was just like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's game changer. Like if what I just experienced happened, and I think that what I just experienced truly did happen, well, I don't know anything about what's going on out there. <laughs> this really opened up uh, a whole new aspect of mind and experience. And we ended up staying there for um, a week. And then I, I stayed on for another week to help with the next set of ceremonies coming through. And I, I just, I was enthralled. It was uh, gaining experience and knowledge in a way I didn't know previously existed. And so that just kind of threw the door wide open. So much so that this was the start of our year-long sabbatical. I, I came out of those two weeks and I said, no, I'm not sure I want to go. We, we had an around-the-world trip plan. And I was like, I'm not sure that that's as important to me as wanting to dive deeper into understanding whatever this is. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we, we did continue on. My wife, wife and I were tired. We needed a break. And so and we had made a lot of commitments. But um, in those first nights of experience, one of the, one of the biggest, I mean, there's so many on it, even like so many insights, but one of the biggest insights was um, the visions, the, the, the insights that I received just said, marijuana and i had been using marijuana for a decade and i was what i i'd like to have thought of myself as a very functional marijuana user i would smoke a joint not a joint i'd smoke a hit of weed and then i could sit and write a business plan for six hours i was just focused i could Mm -hmm. even go for a four-hour run but have a hit of weed before and and i keep my my heart rate almost at a resting pace i was just centered and embodied and so i really thought oh this is this is a medicine for me this is a, this is something that's really good for me but it mm-hmm. just within that that first night it just showed me hey yeah you've been using this it's helped you and here's all the ways this has been a crutch and these are the ways that it's been an escape and these mm-hmm. are the ways that um you don't need this anymore and it was such a, a profound way to teach me and show me something I wasn't willing to look into that from there uh, I gave it up and I've, I've had a couple of times in the last five years for sure um, it's something that I'm still trying to understand is this a no never again or is there a balance in this but and I don't think there's a great answer I think everyone has to make their own decisions on this but for mm-hmm. me, um, it's it's been a growth journey that has been profound and I'm so thankful for because it's uh, it's opened aspects of, of aspects of myself up that I just wasn't willing to look at uh, when I was in that state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious as well. Um, you know, going into those first few ceremonies without sort of a clear intention or expectations, you just can't know what that experience is going to be like, really at all. But 
now sort of five years later, you know, I don't know how often or when the last time you've sat was going to be, but how, how do you sort of see how things have sort of unfolded specifically with the experience of ceremony? Like for myself, my first, I did four nights, my first set, and it was, you know, it was profound and it was life-changing. And a couple of the nights specifically were, you know, big experiences of fear and terror and sadness and emotional release. But now, 25 ceremonies later, I never could have fathomed the sort of continuous unfolding of this multi-dimensional experience that just is seems to be getting richer and deeper in a way that after those first four, I never could have imagined. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's hard to describe and it's hard to understand <clears throat> what, what this is, how you know, imbibing some plants can open things up in this mm-hmm. way. And yeah, it, it, it's a regular part of my life. Uh, and I think it, always will be never say never but mm-hmm. um it's been a really important part of my life my wife's life our family life and you know i've had psychedelic experiences earlier in my life mushrooms and um others and and you know the difference for me in those experiences were profound in that it felt like those psychedelics those entheogens had really connected synapses in my mind information that was already out there, but really, you know, connected these, these ideas that gave me new perspectives. I feel like with ayahuasca, not only are, are new ideas and connections being made, but new information is being brought to me. And um, that is profound. That's whether that's, you know, just deep within my subconscious, my higher self, however you want to frame it, um, that might be it, but it's, it's, become one of the most profound teachers that I've ever had. And whether that's, um, again, plants or something outside of myself, or this just unlocking um, the brilliance of our own biology to a fuller potential, whatever that is, I think that's, that's a great teacher to be learning from, whether it's nature or ourselves. Um, that's a better teacher than any any human teacher we might find who's encultured and and imbued with their own shit as well. Yeah, plants have a lot less uh, less of a track record of projecting their own shit onto us. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think it's you know there. I, my feeling is that there is a wisdom that comes through plants, you know, from nature that is. You know, on one hand, it's sort of outside of us, but on the other hand, we're also, you know, part of nature as well. So it's outside us, but also within us. But the majority of the the teachings and understanding and learnings does feel like it's something that is here. It's around us all the time. It's within us all the time. Like one of the things that, you know, I often come away from ceremonies with a couple of like quotes or sentences that I'm just like, oh, yeah. You know, and one of them was like all the wisdom of of the universe is within each one of us, you know, and it's like, it's all there. We just are blind to it for the most part. And it's like taking off these blinders in a way that is, is really life-changing. 
Yeah, completely. If we, if we look at our biology, if you think of just the history of the planet and what we know about our evolution, our creation, we're, our biology is 4.5 billion years in the making. Mm-hmm. When we look at what we're learning about DNA and epigenetics and all mm-hmm. these different aspects, it's, it, our biology is so incredibly brilliant. And if we can continue to unlock that in whatever way is possible, entheogens, meditation, human interaction, pushing our limits and flow states, whatever that might be, let's unlock that. And the mysteries of the universe are embedded in our, our DNA um, mm-hmm. in nature. If we look around us, and biomimicry and all that is, we're a part of nature. And we're not separate from it. So how, no. do, we, how do we unlock? How do we access that? And how do we realize that nature is just really patterns of relationships? How do we unlock and, and understand all of these different patterns? And this is this has been a pro- profound way uh, through these plant medicines to to catch you know, small glimpses of more and more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that makes me think of a couple questions. So I'm going to go with this one. <laughs> Um, you know, a lot of the work you're doing pre this plant connection uh, and ceremonies was, you know, very much oriented to this natural pattern of relationships with nature and humans, be it getting them water or, you know, like you said, ocean plastics and these things. So I wonder now sort of with this increased level of awareness and consciousness, you know, trying to, you know, as a society, uh, we've really taken those relationships and patterns of relationships with nature and put them into an unnatural sort of state and added obviously a lot of pressure and tension onto nature um, that isn't necessarily harmonious. So it seems like now with this new level of awareness, reapproaching those relationships in terms of being productive and positively engaged, but also just that sort of natural state of homeostasis and harmony as well. And how do you, you know, view that sort of balance at this point? Yeah, I I love that. Um, Particularly the word harmony there, you know, and and this is what I I have to say. I really love what you're doing uh, with Into the Well, looking for this physical, spiritual, emotional, mental health and sustainability and, and harmony across all of this. How do, how do we do that? How, mm-hmm. when we are in harmony, how are we able to connect to things beyond ourselves? And you know, for, for a guy who used to play a lot of music and still plays music for a lot of, playing a lot of bands, that's resonant to the experience of you know, when, when you're really in the pocket, when you're, when you're grooving, when you're, you're jamming with, with others, it goes beyond you and the instrument you're playing and the voice that you're singing from you become something so much greater. And so how can we find those, those natural rhythms within ourselves so that we can connect to these natural rhythms around us? Mm-hmm. That gives us the potential. That's, that's synergy. That's, that's harmony. That's, that's so much more. And uh, yeah, I, I, I love that idea. And really in, in finding ways for us to, you know, I don't think there's any, perfect homeostasis. I think the nature of whatever this universe is, this uh, simulation, as some people think it might be, this uh, whatever it is that, that we're in there, is about creativity 
and as about growth. So homeostasis, we don't, you know, we're not just looking for a comfort comfort level of this is all good and this is just continuing on. How do we push these these edges and these these growth abilities in ways that is in harmony but is stewarding that's that which is around us? How do we ensure that whatever you know we take to 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 grow ourselves to push those limits? Is also pushing those around us and growing mm-hmm. those around us, and I think that's that's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I agree. Like a the state of homeostasis or sort of middle path, you know, if it occurs, it's it's usually only temporary. But I think, at least from my experience and what I see around me a lot, is that it's not even accessible to us. You know whether it's the career path that we have to do and reach 2 million people to get them clean water, or we need to run a marathon at a certain time, or we need to make X amount of money, or you know all the ways that we have to do and do and do. And if we don't do that, then we're not worthy of love you know, from ourselves, from our parents, from our society and our peers. That is just like a recipe for keeping us in a you know higher state of stress. And I often feel and use the metaphor of like a car and its gears you know if like you're doing the most you can in fifth gear or sixth gear i still find like i can't really get down into first gear or neutral which would be sort of like the homeostasis and like pure harmony state where everything is regenerative and and finds its sort of natural place uh, I wonder how that process has been for you because, you know, with all the career stuff, with the surgeries, you know, those are traumatic experiences that put us into a state of stress. Have you been able to sort of get back into into neutral at some point? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I uh, I just celebrated my 40th birthday in July here. And, you know, every year I kind of do a check-in. What are, what are my goals this year? What are my goals this coming year? And how am I doing? And I was driving around on my birthday thinking about this. And I thought, you know, am I happy? And while I was thinking about that, something shifted in me. I was like, wrong metric. That, that was a metric you were chasing after. And, you know, happiness is it's an emotion, but it's fleeting, like all emotions. Things will ebb and flow and come and go. And chasing happiness as much as you know, the Dalai Lama will say the meaning of life is happiness. And we have all sorts of teachers and cliches in our life as if that's what it's about. I had this shift, which was, it's not happiness that I'm after, because then I'm always chasing a fleeting emotion. I'm always chasing the next peak state. I'm always checking, am I content? And for some reason, when that came to me, I was like, I'm very content right now. That doesn't mean tomorrow something's not going to trigger me and I'm going to feel in those periods of lack or not in, in abundance or not uh, feeling content. But just checking in going, well, what's the difference between contentness and happiness? And contentness seems to be more that stabilized. Okay, yeah, there are the little ways of happiness, unhappiness, lack, mm-hmm. want, um, aversion, desire. But in general, you know, those are just the waves on top of the ocean feeling much more like the ocean with it all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of homeostasis, that's, that's a state I'm feeling I'm very, uh, a lot of gratitude for right now. Um, and hopefully it won't stay that way. Hopefully there'll be things that, you know, 
trigger me or, or kick me into, okay, I want, I want to go for more. I want to try for something else. And that's not more money, more career success, more, but just continue to grow, continue to push myself to, um, mm-hmm. yeah, get out of my comfort zone and try new things. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that as well. Yeah, it's, yeah, chasing happiness is, that's going to be exhausting, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, so, well, that, that question of what what allows you to be content, I think this is a big question mm-hmm. that we're facing as a, a civilization. We've been driven on this, you know, this last 250 years of industrial revolution of more growth, growth, more. Of course, you know, we're coming to the awareness that uh, more and more continuous growth is just a cancer. What is content? What do I truly need? What mm-hmm. will allow me to live in a space where I am feeling emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, um, like I'm on the path of growth, but without you know the cost, uh, without too too great a cost that comes to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you have certain things like um, you know nature, meditation? Um, you know, there's family, you know, all of those things I feel like can play a role in creating that sort of environment for a content life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's, for me, you know, it, it's trying to balance all those things. You know, there's weeks where I'll go, I didn't exercise much this week. But wow. I've been at the desk a lot. I got to get out and, and be in nature. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's trying to balance all those with the changing balance of, of our life. We have a, an almost two-year-old toddler and you know, want to throw a, a hook into your, your patterns, your behaviors, your habits. Um, mm-hmm. She's done that continuously for us. The right amount of sleep, the right amount of physicality, the right amount of work into the business, all of those things are, are continuously evolving and shifting. And I have um, no assumptions that, well, I, I have the expectation that she is going to continue to, to shift that and, and throw curveballs at us. And so it's just a continuously, what do I need right now? Checking in. Where mm-hmm. am I feeling off-center? Okay, well, energy is low. Well, maybe physicality should be the number one priority for me today. How can I just get the nutrition? How can I get up for the run? Um, I don't think there's any answers to it, but I do think that's turning back inwards and just listening. Where am I off-center? Where, where am I needing something? How can I nourish and nurture my body in the best way possible? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think like, like you've been saying, sort of every day is different. Every week is different. And the ability to listen to ourselves and have that awareness is that like such a key to unlocking any of these things, you know, whether it's, you know, do I need to rest today? Do I need to work out today? Do I need to maybe just eat vegetables today? Or do I need a big steak today? You know, all of those things. Do I need more sleep? You know, even what kind of meditation might I do today? Or am I okay with not meditating today? You know, all of those things being able to tap into, I guess, you know, the way I've been sort of taught and and experienced that is sort of a connection with my soul and sort of a a deeper sense of self um, that you sort of learn to communicate with. And I wonder when you sort of started developing that and what it's like now today compared to what it used to be. Cause you know, there's a progression of that. It can be a voice that is easy to ignore and is sort of 
mute it out as we, you know, are toddlers ourselves into adulthood. And we really need to like reconnect with that part of ourselves. Yeah, totally. You know, I, I used to look at it like uh, the spinning plates. You ever seen those circus mm-hmm. performers? So I'd have, uh, I, I partition my life into seven different aspects. So um, career, finances, health, relationships, um, fun, spirituality, all these different containers um, mm-hmm. that would be there for me. And I always kind of come back to them. Okay, am I spinning this one? Okay, so get that one going. And every once in a while, you'd have them all spinning. And you'd be able to step back and you'd have these gestalt type moments. <laughs> and like, okay, I'm good. Just enjoy, just, just be there. But I'm, I'm finding those buckets. There's, there's more and more buckets. And as you have more and more responsibilities, you're not just spinning your own plates. You're spinning those of your mm. family, of your relationships, of your staff, right? all of these different people in your life. And so when that becomes too much, um, and I know this segues onto our, our next conversation, but for me, what's, what's really shifted is um, tuning in and, and turning on to my, my dream time. My dreams, um, as I've, I've really learned to listen to them and as I've really been able to um, interpret what's coming to me, those are the messages that I've been really listening to. Mm-hmm. And they've been really helpful in showing me, okay, time to shine some light on this aspect of your life. Time to look at this block which you've been avoiding. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I've really come to this understanding that dream time, our dreams, are one of the best ways that our human organism can talk to itself. Can't obviously send us clear verbal messages as we would interact or communicate with others, but it can send us some incredibly emotive visual narratives that can really catch our attention, that can mm-hmm. really force us to question, okay, what, what is this? What is this trying to show me? It can really force us to try and figure out these little mysteries and puzzles and expand our, our, our mental maps beyond what we currently know and understand. And that, so that's mm-hmm. been a big part of my practice. You know, as well, I, as I said, I work with plant medicines and I look for insights from people around me and nature and all these types of things. But for me, I've got this, um, this tuned-in system now of every single day, what's coming to me, what's bubbling from my subconscious, my higher self the universe, however you want to frame it, um, mm-hmm. and what do I need to listen to. And now, rather than finding an extra 10 minutes of my day for meditation or what. I'm doing this in my sleep. This is this is kind of opening has opened an antenna for me. That has been some of the 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 best advice and the best insights that I can garner for myself. Yeah, that's super cool. And I definitely want to get into that. I'm just gonna save it for a little bit more and we can awesome. sort of jump back in. Mm-hmm. I just want to sort of touch once more sort of on this idea of the kind of ascent and then descent before the the second mountain, which is the the title of a book. I can't remember the author, but it's it's really interesting. I find, you know, as your career was ramped up, your sort of career as an athlete was ramped up. And then it was this sort of descent into yourself. And obviously we touched on the injuries and that shifting things. But then when we first met, I remember, and this would have been, and I think about three years ago, um, almost exactly, which is actually right around when I did my first ceremonies, um, I remember John telling me a little bit about yourself and you were sort of 
I think around that time looking for a new job, a new position, and you were potentially exploring something at, at Hollyhock, uh, pretty high up, and it didn't end up working out. And I wonder, you know, on the career sort of purpose, self-worth, value, belief side of things, you know, because for myself, the last year and a half, I've made this shift kind of from the fashion world into this health and wellness world. And part of that was spurned on by being sort of let go, essentially, from a couple of big contracts that I had that I felt I was doing a great job. You know, I felt like, why would these people not want my my work, my energy, my insights. And so it was like, you know, in in hindsight, I'm like, okay, well, the universe is telling me this is not what I need to be spending my energy on. And it's one thing to sort of have that idea, but also the same thing at the same time, I'm like, well, I'm not good enough for this. So now as I approach a new endeavor concept idea, and I'm trying to like dream bigger than I was before, I still find myself like very much questioning my ability. uh, If other people are going to understand what I'm trying to do, you know, that whole sort of process of like, at one point being like, well, I'm the best creative director in the world. And now I'm like, does anyone even want to hire me? You know, am I good enough for anything? (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's super resonant. Um, And that was very similar to my experience coming back to Canada. You know, my wife and I moved back to Canada after being, you know, Cushy expat vibes have been fantastic, um, and we had we had done some pretty impactful work. You know, we've, we've grown an organization to 300 staff and a 40 million dollar budget across nine countries. We were working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Bank, all of these these things that you know, from a normal, am I doing well in my career perspective? Said, yep, this is this is going good. And so we came to Vancouver, wanting to have family, be closer to our families. And we figured, oh, well, the world is our oyster. How many people at our age, in their 30s, have these types of experiences? And uh, we came to to Vancouver. Vancouver is a challenging city. It's the most incredible city, but also challenging career-wise. And could be a job for you. As you were saying, I was looking at the CEO role of Hollyhock, an organization I can't speak highly enough about. It's kind of the SLM of of the North here in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't get the role on that. That was a real blow to me as well. And I couldn't get a job again for another few months after that. So why, why can't I get hired? Where's my sense of self-worth? I need this validation out there. And, you know, that was, although challenging at the time, really helpful to me. Or whose, whose validity do I need? What am I searching for? What's mm-hmm. really important for me here? And how do I tune into that? And so, um, you know, these fears of not being enough in the eyes of others. Fear is what stops us from everything. Fear is what stops us from living out the life of our dreams. And so really starting to look at and addressing those fears. Why am I looking through the eyes of others when I should be looking through my own eyes? Why, how do I unload that burden off my shoulders of the expectations of others? And that's I think for me, that's been a big part of my growth process. We all grow up you know, as children wanting to meet the expectations of parents, of teachers, of coaches, of you name it, until I think we're ready to. So you know, the only expectations that are important are mine. The only person I'm competing with is myself to be a better and better self every day. And 
there's something that's more challenging with that because you have to hold yourself to a much greater level of accountability and responsibility. But there's something so liberating about that. So as you and I um, and others who start to take this, this path less travel, this journey of these entrepreneurship endeavors, um, and as more and more people, as we're seeing, have the platforms and opportunities to do this and share their, their gifts and guidance with the world, um, I think that's, that's an incredibly liberating, individuating opportunity for us all to, to mm-hmm. express ourselves in the best way possible. And that's most true to our, our inner selves. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's, you know, it's so important that more people start doing that. But it is really hard. It's really hard to, you know, be like, okay, these values or these ideals aren't mine. And then it's like, well, what are my values? You know, what is my dream? What is truly in alignment with my heart and soul? And that sort of process of, you know, like we were saying before, getting back in touch with that part of ourselves and then getting clear on what those things are, more likely than not, then it's scary to actually take the steps to do that. So I wonder sort of with regards to your process and your journey, you know, how, how did that sort of unfold for you? Or, you know, I've had times in my normal life, be it in meditation or even in a conflict with my girlfriend, but also in ceremony where it's like, Oh, this is a scary area that I'm going to have to step into. Now I have to go do this thing. That's really scary, but I know without a question, it's what I have to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, fear is such a, a beautiful motivator, right? Fear is um, fear of pain, fear of life and death. And, you know, pain is, is such a great uh, motivator as well because mm-hmm. it forces reaction, it forces us to do something. And, yeah. you know, in my, my own journey, we can, we can talk of all of the cliches of face your fears, get out of your comfort zone. And, and there's, there's a lot of truth to all of that, which is, um, the things that I'm most proud of in my life are the things that I had to face my fears, that I had to step over that, that ledge into the unknown. And you know, that's, that's been particularly with this, um, this what I'm doing now with, with the dream work. Mm-hmm. This has been the scariest thing I've ever done. And I say that because you know, so much of my career business school, uh, everything that was the trajectory of Bob Cordell's done this, he should now be doing that. He should be making this and all of that. Um, you know, I, I kind of threw off and said, I'm going to do something that is so true and core to me. It's been such a big part of my life. And a lot of people are going to look at me going, he's lost it. He's gone off the deep end. Well, what's mm-hmm. he doing? He's in dream work. He's doing ayahuasca ceremonies, moved out to the island. Um, <laughs> You know, he's, he's off the deep end. He's, he's off the rails here. Not caring what anyone else thinks and just doing what is true and authentic to myself. That was, that was, that was really scary um, mm-hmm. to get out there and start sharing. And interestingly enough, I have to say that the people who I was most concerned about their judgments, those people, you know, high-profile business people that I looked up to, um, Interestingly, those have been the first people that have come this past year as my client, mm-hmm. the ones that have won. 
I'm so glad you, you put that out and talked about how important dream work has been and their insights and creativity have come from that place. Yeah, that's that's been my experience too. How can I go deeper? And so just in, in facing those fears and, and overcoming them, it, it's alleviated so much concern of the consensual reality chatter, the, 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 the nerves about what other people think. Mm-hmm. That I think each time we do that, those, those become less and less attachments for us. There's less aversion of what other people might think and more. I got to just do, I got to be true here. Yeah. That's what we want. I think we want a, a world of people who are fully embodied, who are fully expressing themselves, who are expressing the diversity of their unique individuality. Um, that, that gives us diverse ecosystems, diverse resilience. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's what we want. Yeah. And, and that process usually is sort of one step at a time that we step further and further, you know, into our fears and into our sort of truest self in alignment with ourselves on that level. And, you know, I think it goes without saying, like, how you just ex- explained it, you know, um, as you do that, there is more often than not positive affirmation um, that that is what we should be doing. And people respond to it, not with the judgment we fear, but usually with the support that we, you know, we want, but it's not why we're doing it. But I wonder beyond that, how that process has sort of affected your life, be it, you know, other ailments or stresses that, you know, we often can become so fixated on, but as we sort of step into this truer version of ourselves and let go of those judgments, it feels like other aspects of our life fall into alignment more easily as well. Yeah, other aspects fall into alignment, and I think just our horizons are broadened. And, mm-hmm. you know, okay, I'm, I'm no longer constrained by these blocks, these obstacles, these concerns. Now that those that are no longer at my periphery, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm no longer spending any energy mm-hmm. defending or, or dealing with those. What can that energy be rechanneled? Okay, I've got a, a wider canvas to paint on, a wider expanse, and that's where um, creativity is unleashed. And so for me, you know, the ability to to coach, to run courses, to write, to express myself in ways I never thought I would be doing. It's just beautiful. And I have the energy. I have the energy for all these other aspects that was that was being used you know, to protect Cordell all mm-hmm. of this time. That's now freedom is is able to be unleashed into okay, what do I want to create? How do I want to help? Where where do I want to connect? And, mm-hmm. and that's um it just, for me, it, nothing's perfect. There's lots of challenges, mm-hmm. as we talked about in all of these aspects. Um, but I have more energy for all of them. And that's, that's just coming into alignment. Yeah, no, I think that's really cool. So, you know, a lot of this process of coming back to ourselves is sort of working through the conditions that we've internalized, really, but they more often than not originate with our parents and then society has become like a massive amplifier for for those as well. Uh, you obviously just mentioned that you've got a almost two year old child now, and uh, you know the last person I spoke to on the podcast, she has a couple of children, and she mentioned something that was like, um, you know, having a child is a gateway to a deeper spiritual practice. And I wonder, sort of, one, how the experience of becoming a father has sort of changed your perspective 
um, but also how, given the awareness and lessons you've learned in the last five, 10 years of life, how do you sort of approach parenting and what are some of the key pieces around that that you want to sort of share and not project too much onto, onto your child and, you know, just raise, give that, give that little being the best opportunity to be their purest self and feel safe in doing so. Yeah, totally. Well, of course, as it's been said, children are our greatest teachers and just, there are such mirrors you see uh, with our daughter right now. She's a sponge. She's just reflecting anything back. So if we're not super present, if we're not super conscious, my daughter picked up a a wood block the other day and put it up to her ear as if it was a cell phone and said, (laughs) oh, I'm busy. I'm busy. And I was like, where's that coming from? Wow. Clearly that's, that's been around her. Gotta, gotta get more present here. And so there's there's such wonderful teachers just reflecting your moods, your emotions, your presence back to you. And so that's, um, that's such an incredible gift. And, you know, because ceremony, as it relates to plant medicines and other ceremonies that are now a bigger part of our life, um, rites, you know, rituals, even just last night was the harvest moon. We were out there making a tobacco offering, giving thanks for what has been one year in our home here, for the, the relationships, the community, the, the family, all of the learnings that we've been given. As ceremony has been kind of deeper entrenched into our life, um, we're trying to to create that as part of her life. That that's going to be uh, normal. And I know you've looked at this before in some of your podcasts and spoken with others, you know, our rites of passage, you know, a big green miss um, in our, our civilization and culture right now. So how do we bring that in? How do we celebrate and bring some sacred reverence to these important aspects, whether they be big or little? Um, how do we give these things energy? And, you know, while our partner and I were in international development, there was a, a big statistic that stuck with us. And that was that in the first years of, uh, first thousand days of a child's life, um, there is so much impact on the foundational level of their growth. We were looking at this from water and sanitation. So if children didn't have water and sanit- good, clean, hygienic sanitation or water in the first thousand days, that was a greater impact on their physical and cognitive development than GDP of the country, than nodes, than you name it. Just mm. this is the time that your roots are taking place. And so my partner and I have decided that these first thousand days of her life and if we have others are going to be the time that we want to spend the greatest deal of attention and focus. We want to be present. We want to be nurturing. And if that means sacrifice to the career, if that means sacrifice to other things, as parents, we kind of think this is the best thing we can do. Let their roots grow deep, strong, and secure so that their branches might reach as high as possible into the skies. And so we've taken, um, you know, it's it shifted how we looked at career, how we look at um, just the, the balance of priorities and responsibilities that we take on for the rest of our, our children's life. Other people will be supporting their development, teachers, coaches, but these first couple of years is what we, we can be with them the most. And so now we're just trying to, to be there, to be present, to be loving and, and to really, you know, Every day that we do that, it brings up our own stuff. And so mm-hmm. it, it allows us and forces us to work through our own little blocks. Why am I not fully present right now? What's mm-hmm. what's holding me back? Where is my mind wandering to when it can't mm-hmm. just be here, it's now, 
short, fleeting moment, but for life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really nice. Uh, you mentioned as well, like you moved um, to Vancouver Island, you know, and I wonder, you know, along with this sort of attachment to this big, you know, international career reaching millions of people, you're very much sort of a global citizen in a sense, you and your and your wife, you know, to sort of accept this move to the island, you know, where it's like, oh, it's so small, it's so quaint, you know, there's a lot less going on, you know, how is that sort of process um, for, for you as a couple, for you as an individual? And then I'm also curious, you know, in alignment with that is, you know, you mentioned sacrificing like tobacco and prayer to the harvest moon and this sort of, you know, combining of a modern global life, you know, using the internet and everything, but then a return to some of these, you know, indigenous practices and rituals that have been around for thousands of years, which I think is, is really a beautiful combination. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a shift for sure. Um, my wife is a, a metropolitan city girl. We're both Canadian and European citizens. She's lived in Mexico City and Paris and all sorts of places. So when it came no, I think this is the, the right move to move to a very rural area. We're not in a town or city. We're just in a re- regional district <laughs> in, uh, on Vancouver Island. Uh, it was a big shift. And it was, what are we giving up? What, is this a mistake? The, the draw was here both from um, community of friends that had moved out here, um, people who practice the medicine that we work with, um, number and just wanting to be really that much closer to nature from Vancouver. It's not a hardship. Everyone lives in a tiny box, um, mm. having space, being next to the ocean, being next to the mountains, being next to the forest. We wanted that as part of the environment that our daughter grew up in. Mm. Um, and you know, what really lightened the blow in, in this shift was that just a few months after COVID hit. And mm. so uh, I had a buddy call me up about a month after COVID started. And he said, I bet you have a real smug, shitty grin on your face right now <laughs> while we're all locked down in our tiny condos and you guys are out there playing in the fields and being in the forest and hiking the mountains. And, um, there was a, a part of that. It's been a bit more of a public here, a bit more of a, you know, we're, we're able to be outdoors and connecting mm-hmm. with friends in the same way that we were before, just playing out in nature. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, these are, this was a growth edge. This was, not we're not really actions. We're not really networking in the same. Yeah. Way, maybe creating the same opportunities, but at the same time, um, my mantra this year is always a one year, one word mantra for my year, and it's been trust. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the idea to come to the island was a vision that I had. Uh, I trust it. Trust that the idea of starting this new venture um, came to me. Okay, I trust. I just keep trusting that. If it's mm-hmm. time to go, um, the doors will close or something will come just to. Right. But right now, uh, I would rather be anywhere else in the world. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so you've mentioned um, the dream work that you've gotten into a couple of times. I was hoping that you could sort of share the origins of that and, um, yeah, where it started, maybe some of the influential teachers or books or things that have sort of helped you go deeper into that and um, some of the yeah core core takeaways that you've gotten from that over the years as you've gone deeper into it. Yeah, sure. So dreaming has always been a, a really big part of my life. And when I was younger, I, I used to get fevers and have very hallucinatory um, experiences. I couldn't tell whether I was awake or asleep. And 
that all that kind of piqued my curiosity about what these altered states and different places I would go to, what they were all about. And then when I was in my early 20s, I was dating a woman, and her mother turned out to be one of the world's foremost dream psychologists. She actually wrote a chapter of a book with uh, the Dalai Lama, and she turned me on to all sorts of, of aspects of dreaming. And I, I was flabbergasted. I didn't even know that dreams were a field of academic study. Mm. Um, and so I just started reading everything I could get my hands on. And so I started learning about lucid dreaming, that place where you're aware that you're dreaming within a dream. You can start to, to influence control in that space. Uh, and over the years, over the last 20 years or so, uh, I've studied the science of what's happening while we're asleep and while we're dreaming, all the different um, psychological aspects, Freud, Young, Calvin, and others, what, what we think is happening and why parts of our subconscious might be coming up. And really, uh, I've studied a lot of the different lineages around the world, uh, different cultures, their beliefs and dreams, the importance of dreams. And it's, you know, it's really interesting because in all the 4,000 plus cultures that we have around the world, uh, the vast majority still give a lot of credence, weight, and importance to their dreams. It still informs a lot of the decisions in society, a lot of the the aspects of knowledge, customs, rituals, and rights. And so you know, we're, we're here in the minority here. We're in the West mm. uh, where you know, we're very much about scientific rationalism. Dreams are just phenomena of the mind. And there's no way to have consensus discussion or decision about it. So we've kind of, over these last few hundred years, stopped giving weight and importance to it. And uh, for me, I, I think that's a missed opportunity. It's been such a vibrant and informing aspect of my lived experience that, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been only in the last few years that I've start, decided to start sharing it with others. Mm. And um, just a, a quick story on that. As we talked about doing plant medicine work, I uh, shared that you know, there was some trauma in my household when I was 11, 12 years old. I went into ceremonies with the intention to, to look at some of that trauma and how it's shaped my worldviews and the way I show up in life. And for three nights of ceremonies, I couldn't go into it. I kept getting these visions of, hey, you need to start sharing this 20 years of dreamwork practice and 20 years mm -hmm. of dreamwork research with others. And I kind of thought, you know, that's a distraction. That's me afraid of not, you know, afraid of looking at my, my stuff, afraid of going into the trauma and having to feel the feels. And, you know, I just don't want to do it. This is, this is my mind trying to escape that. And so I walked away from those ceremonies, unsure. I kind of lacked those visions for, for six months. And then I had a really big dream. And this dream was where I was able to, be a witness. I was able to go back and see my 11-year-old self. I was able to see this boy that was insecure, that was afraid his family was going to lose his home, afraid of his dad losing his mind, afraid of so many things. And I was able to just hold my little inner child to say, this isn't your fault. Things are going to be okay. Um, you're loved. And as I was holding little Cordell, we just kind of dissolved into each other and I woke up and I woke up just going, woke up from one of the most profoundly healing experiences I've ever had in my life. And that's when things kind of clicked. Mm -hmm. Okay. I knew that there was 
continually available to us through dreams, but I've never really experienced it like this. I know we can incubate and architect these types of experiences through dreams. And that's when it clicks. Ah, we have ceremony available to us every night. We have the ability to, to go in and look at our shadows and look at our traumas, and look at the things that are hindering our growth and hindering us from showing up in the fullest way we possibly can. And that was that was the moment where I said, okay, I'm all in. I'm going to start teaching. I'm going to start sharing. I'm going to start coaching. And that was the impetus for what has been this last year of growth in, in my business. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really cool. So I have a couple of questions around sort of just the dream process and, and that side of it. And, you know, just like, I guess, general context in a way, you know, you obviously mentioned ceremony in relation to the dream state, which, it, you know, I have experience with it. I don't know how many listeners have, have gone into ceremony in that way, but I'm just personally curious to know, like at this stage of your dream experience, how similar is it in terms of going into ceremony? You know, there's like an intention and you can kind of go and you can kind of point the ship in a direction that you want to go. But then beyond that, you're kind of surrendering to whatever comes up and whatever, you know, yeah, there is beneath the surface that you just probably don't really know too much about what's there with the dream space. Is that a similar thing where you're sort of, okay, maybe you have intention and now you kind of point the ship out there and then fall asleep and, you know, how much of it are you sort of co-creating as opposed to just purely surrendering to? Yeah, that's a really, really good, big question. Um, you know, where, I'm, where I am at with things is that um, dreaming and ceremony, dreaming and ayahuasca is, is so similar. Mm-hmm. And there's a great quote out there, which is, you know, dreaming is like, um, you know, consciousness while you sleep, ceremony, ayahuasca or other plant medicine is like, uh, dreaming while you're awake. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it very similarly. You know, to have some volition, some influence, some control in the dream, anyone can learn this. It takes a little bit of practice. Um, but once, you, once you're able to recall your dreams, have some lucid dreams, be able to, uh, to work with them, um, yeah, you can start to, to enact or intend different experiences and different reactions or responses to what's happening. Very similar to, to ceremony. You know, the first time you walk into ceremony, you don't have an idea like, whoa, what's, what's taking over here? What's, what's going on? But as you have a couple ceremonies under your belt, you learn to start to be able to work with the medicine, to mm-hmm. work with intentions, to hold your space and say, I'm here to look at this. I'm here to work with this. I'm here to be shown something around this or that. And so there's always um, the ability to have some intention and to work with those intentions. And yet with dream or with ceremony, you are also at the whim of the plants or the greater dream that's around you, no matter how strong your lucidity practice um, up and to some extent, there's always going to be a randomness. Uh, some otherness that mm-hmm. affects the creativity of the dream or the experience that you have. So they're very similar. And, you know, there's, there's a lot more that we can discuss in terms of, you know, what is the difference between the dreams that we have at night and the dreams that some cultures refer to it that we have while we're awake here. This is a different form of dreaming. Mm-hmm. We are constrained by gravity, by physics, by 
um, certain thresholds that were not constrained by a dream, but this is a dream as well, just of another sort. And so how do we act and how do we live lucidly in this dream of the waking state? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's definitely interesting. Um, <laughs> I guess what I understand in terms of you know, a similarity between the the ceremony space and the dream space is that um, sub-level or maybe all of our sort of egoic mind is sort of shutting down and we're able to access our subconscious with a great greater deal of sort of access and clarity, which, you know, can be super random. It can be really metaphorical. It can be, you know, very confusing as well. And it can, you know, this combination of visuals or scenes that we can see or something like an event that's happening, but then also the actual like feeling that it's charged with. Um, You know, I wonder like how would you just like describe the dream state specifically in terms of what's coming up? Like, is that our self, our subconscious? Like my coach, we've done a couple of sessions where we're analyzing a dream that I've had. And he said thing, something to me where it's like, you know, in, in the stream state, it's our, an opportunity for our subconscious to keep, to tell us something that we're not hearing in our conscious daily lives. And especially if it's a reoccurring dream, then it's something we really need to start, you know, paying attention to and listening. Um, you know, another, a friend of ours, John, who's been on the podcast, he was, he told me one time, cause his mom used to kind of coach him with his dreams growing up. Something that I, I try and remember is that usually if there's other people in our dreams, they're just like another reflection of ourselves and they're not, you know, specifically other people. I think oftentimes when people have dreams, they take it very literally. It's like, oh, well, I saw this person today and then they were in my dream or this event happened and something mirrors that in your dream. So I just wonder, you know, with the knowledge and research you've done, like how much of that is literal, how much of it is metaphorical, and you know, maybe there's a variety of both. But yeah, yeah, there, there, there's there's a lot to unpack there, and <laughs> you know, let me let me just say those are those are all great questions, and those are questions that have plagued mankind <laughs> the beginning of time, and unfortunately, despite all of the technological and scientific advancements that we have, and we've learned a lot about what's happening biologically um, while we're dreaming, the ultimate answer is we still don't know why we dream. And that's a big mystery. Is this our subconscious that's bubbling up and through? Well, that's, that's a theory. It's still a theory. It's a well-accepted theory. There's aspects of ourselves that um, are hidden from us during the daylight or, or are are blocked from us or things that we are repressed or dissociating from. And that that makes a lot of sense. That resonates with with my worldview. But ultimately, again, we we don't really know. And so that's where you can subscribe to Freudian or Jungian or um, shamanic or all different ideas and attitudes toward this. And I think what's important to recognize with all of these big questions is that with dreaming being understood as a, a total mystery, it begs the question, you know, how is your connection to mystery every day, every night, informing your life? And it's, it's a big question for us to ponder. I think in our, our very busy, rational, scientific worldview where we think we know a lot about 
um, everything that's going on, and we just need to transact and, and achieve and accomplish. We we forget to to remind ourselves of the mystery of it all around us. What's out there? What is this? Why are we here? And um, not having any of those answers is is beautiful. It gives mm-hmm. us choice. Okay, we don't have answers. What view? What perspective do I want to take on all of this? This is my personal sacred experience. No one else gets to enter my universe in this way. And so what do I choose? What do I choose to to make of this, to make meaning of this? How do I choose to explore this? And choice at its root is incredibly empowering. And so Mm -hmm. this connection to mystery, this connection to choice is an opportunity for empowerment. Again, coming back to what we've been talking about, being true and, and being integrated with your true nature here. This gives us mm-hmm. an opportunity to play with that continuously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think, you know, that that sort of connection and resonance with with mystery and sort of the magic of everything that's going on, I think is so important because that, you know, as long as we've been around and science has existed, you know, we know like we know nothing about what's going on. You know, there's just an absolute magical force that's creating life around us nonstop. That is so far beyond anything we can really fathom in our you know daily lives, you know, and we just take it for granted. And it's, I think reconnecting with that and appreciating it and just being in it allows that possibility for anything to happen in our lives. You know, like if, we can exist in a tree can grow out of an acorn and, you know, plants and soil can be the thing that saves us from all the environmental harm that we've done. You know, it's just like mind blowing. So why can't I have this career or a family or a car, you know, like. And, and just to, to go back to the, the other aspect of your question, mm-hmm. which was, you know, so your coach talked about those potential blind spots that come up in you know, the, the choice that I've made about the importance of dreams um, really, as I, as I said before in part one of our podcast, is that dreams are, are really this incredible way that our human organism talks to itself. It's mm. a self-correcting system. It's a way of us informing ourselves how to be in better harmony with mm. the world around us, with ourselves, with the relationships, with our interactions, and how to evolve or grow past these blind spots. So the the aspect of blind spots is important because I think, um, like you said, if we're not open to looking at something in our daily life, if we're too rigid in our worldviews or the perspectives we're taking, how we show up, then dreams will start to give us these interesting narratives. And and not necessarily narratives, but narrative disruptors these mm-hmm. odd stories that are there that are designed to disrupt our current narratives of self and the world around us. And if we don't listen to those dreams, then they'll build more energy and they'll become recurring dreams. And if we don't listen to those, then they'll build even more energy up and become nightmares. And mm-hmm. if you've ever woken up from a really big nightmare, heart pounding, sweating, panicked, anxiety, whatever it might be, then it's your, your human organism going, have I got your attention now? <laughs> okay, yeah, 
now now I've got your attention. There's something to look at. There's something you're not listening to. There's a blind spot you're overlooking it. And this is where we have the opportunity with our dreams to dig in. This is where, as we get these weird, disruptive, non-cohesive, non-linear stories that come to us in the night, it forces us to stretch our minds, to stretch beyond our, the current maps we have, the current mental maps we have of the territories we inhabit mm-hmm. to stretch into something bigger than we currently are. I truly believe that all dreams come in the service of growth. We're not here to pat us on the back and say, you're doing a good job, keep it up. Mm-hmm. They're always here to, to send us some information that will help us grow, that will push us to bigger, fuller ways of, of showing up in life. And like I said, there's, there's lots of different um, beliefs and lineages and arts and sciences to this, but we have to find what works for us. This is, again, your personal sacred experience. So mm-hmm. how, what can you take and put in your tool belt to make sense, to make meaning, to interact with these visionary experiences we have every night? Ultimately, again, this is where I think we have ceremony every night. Do we choose to tune into it? Do we, hear, do we choose to listen to it and to integrate it into our daily waking life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of mentioned earlier that this is going to be a part one of, of two conversations. And sort of the reason for that is you are starting a dream course, a six-week course that you've um, set up and it starts this month. So I'm going to take the course and then we're going to reconnect after that to sort of talk about the experience what I've learned in in the process and then also from your perspective of what you're teaching and coaching and and add more context there but I think you know to leave off this this episode um, something you shared on Instagram recently which I thought was really interesting and ties back into the you know experience of being an athlete and running and letting that go and what you're just talking about is you know the ability for us to let down all of these, you know, boundaries that we created in our conscious life and then go beyond what we thought was there in our dream state, you know, your experience with going for a run in your dream and how now you're able to sort of access that experience without actually physically doing it. Yeah, it's it's been hugely healing for me to be able to, to go and to intend to have those experiences. I, I wake up with exhilaration after running anywhere I want on the planet or off the planet. Yeah. And uh, that, that's, that's provided a lot of healing. That's provided support in the grieving process of losing my knee, of um, leaving that chapter behind and still, being, still embodying that in, in a different way. And so, you know, for me, I mean, worked with the plant medicines and having been on my own healing journey, this is the most profound aspect of dream work. Of course, creativity, insights, flying around, having fun, all of those are, are really important as well. Play is so incredibly important to how mm-hmm. we show up in life. But the fact that we might be able to, technically can heal from our trauma, the fact that the potential is there for us on any given night to let go of our baggage to heal the wounds that are there that show up in life um, is is so incredibly transformative. And I think that's that's what we're looking for. I think you know if we can have as many transformative transformative growth experiences possible in life, um, that's where I want to be. Yeah, me too. 
Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's probably a great spot to leave it. I definitely have more questions, but fortunately I'm going to get another chance to ask you coming up soon. So yeah, thanks so much for your time today. If people want to follow you and, and see what you're talking about and sharing right now, where can they do that? Yeah. Uh, best way to, to find me is at cordelljacks.com. And that's my, my website. So I'm on Instagram, cordelljacks. And otherwise, yeah, if anyone's interested in my course coming up on October 15th, they can find more about that there. That is particularly tailored to those who are working with plant medicines, um, teaching them their own dream practices. And otherwise, there's a lot more about uh, the multitude of offerings that have around dream. Ryan, thank you. Thank you for, for having me here today. It's been a pleasure as always to, to dive in with you. Yeah, definitely. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for sharing this and super excited about the course ahead and uh, what's going to come of that. I have no idea, but it'll be interesting without a doubt. Beautiful. I look forward to it. I look forward to our, our next conversation on here as well. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Cordell. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.